are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Friday, everybody. We have reached the end of the week, and it's a free-for-all Friday. Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net going to join us for the full two hours of the show. Lance, Jeremy, how are y'all doing today? TGIF. Noah Gardner, I am thankful it is the weekend. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Jeremy, what's up, my man? Can't just go your whole week, Lance. Looking forward to Friday. Every day matters, but it is a free-for-all Friday. Good rundown on the show, Noah, that you've put together. It should be a it should be a fun Friday. Looking to get the calls going. Looking to break down a little Auburn, Georgia. Coming up a lot going on on the show. You know, Jeremy's exactly right. There's a Winnie the Pooh quote that I have pinned to the top mm-hmm. of my Twitter account, A.A. Milne. It's a quote by A. Milne, the person who wrote Winnie the Pooh. And Winnie the Pooh asks, what day is it? Piglet says, it's today. And then Pooh says, my favorite day. And 100%, that's the way you got to live your life. Every day can be your best day if you want it to be. So let's start it off. we got a free-for-all Friday here on On the Line. We posted a graphic to the ESPN 106.7 Twitter account. Follow ESPN 106.7 on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest going on at the station We posted a graphic of Auburn's last five coaches, first-year records, and we got some pushback by some folks disagreeing that there will be improvement this year because each of the last five coaches, when they took over, with the exception of Pat Dye, but I still think people would say that Pat Dye's first year was an improvement over the previous year, despite the fact that the record may have not have shown it, it was still an improvement. Each of the last five coaches have improved the record of the program when they took over in their first year. Other folks not as confident that that is going to happen to Auburn this year. Why is there a belief that this coaching hire this year is going to hold Auburn back this season? Well, there was somewhat of a downward trend towards the end of last season, right? after a co- When a coach is fired at the end of the year, it's probably because he had a bad season, and obviously we didn't see a great Auburn football season last year, albeit if we had two non-conference games, Auburn probably would have gone 8-4, and four, but it was not up to standard, and you look at the guys that are coming back, there's there's quite a bit of returning production, and so I think somebody outside the situation or even Auburn fans can look at this season and say, well, Gus Malzahn, Malzahn did so many good things for us in 2013, 2017, but this, the 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 whole program was just kind of kind of exploding there towards the end of his tenure, and he's gone, and the guys that that were terrible are still here. At least that's how some may negative fans may view it. So I can I can I don't understand that, but I I can see how some people may view it that way. I think there's just a lot of negativity in the Auburn fan base, and firing Malzahn was a very polarizing move, in my opinion. I don't think that the coaching hire is what holds Auburn back this year. It's overall it's a change of system. It will be a change of pace, um, and just the unfamiliar territory that you have with a new coach and. 
I'm one of the guys saying, hey, just let Brian Harson go out there, do his thing. If he wins, he wins. He loses, he loses. And then it's time to evaluate. It's not time to evaluate right now, but I do feel like that Lance is correct as there was a downward trend last year. So now you're putting a new guy in place with players that he did not recruit that may or may not fit his system overall. Although now I think a lot of people would take a third year starting quarterback in their first year as a head coach, like Brian Harson is about to get with Bo Nix. I'm not sure guys it's a this coaching hire is what's going to hold it back, but it's the whole situation overall surrounding the Auburn program as it gets ready for the 2021 season. And I know we say it all the times, but you also look at the schedule. You look at who you're going to match up against, and there are some juggernauts in the West that Auburn has to deal with this year. And and I think the Auburn standard, as you, you guys were talking about over the last few years, has been competing for the SEC West, competing for a spot in Atlanta at the end of the year. And I think people, it's going to be a stretch this year, but I'm not saying that Auburn can't get there with an experienced guy like Bo Nix who has a lot of reps under his belt probably an overall better quarterback coach in Brian Harson than he had with Gus Malzahn and the Chad Morris combo last year. So let's just wait and see. Over on Twitter, at ESPN1067 is where you can find the graphic that I'm talking about. First-year records at Auburn since 1981, or just go and look at Wikipedia and go and find the, the first-year records of these coaches. But still, some of the responses on Twitter – at War Eagle, Ed, underneath the graphic said, I think the talent left behind by the previous coaches has more to do with those great first season records than it simply being the new coach's first season. I don't think Coach Gus Malzahn did Coach Brian Harson that favor. Kenny Ray responds, no offensive line, no receivers, unless unknown talent steps up, probably one of those average seasons. What do you guys say to those responses? Jeremy? Listen, I don't think it's going to be a – this isn't going to be an Auburn in Atlanta season, but I do think that this could be a building block season. I think Brian Harson is a young, energetic head coach that will find ways to motivate these players when wins and losses at the end of the day may not be telling the full story of this season. I think there's going to be some great things to take away from the Auburn season regardless of wins and losses, the same way that you were just talking about Pat Dye. I think you're going to see a change of culture. I think you're going to see a change of performance and participation on the field. And you can say all you want to last year. Listen, they were turning down tackles in the Iron Bowl. Once it kind of got a little bit out of out of hand, uh, there wasn't a lot of participation on the defensive end. I think you're going to see an extra fire, an extra spark around Auburn, regardless of what the scoreboard and the record is telling you. And I think that's something that Auburn fans can look forward to. And I'm not saying those wins aren't going to come. But I'm saying regardless of the circumstances on the scoreboard or in the win-loss column, you're going to be ex- I think you're going to be excited to see what's happening on the field, especially when at the end of the year and you look back. Go back to Brian Harson's first press conference, and one of the things that he continued to harp on was that he wanted Auburn football to be competitive. That's exactly what Jeremy's saying. They may not necessarily get the wins, but they want to be competitive in every single game that they're in. They want to be fundamental. They want to be sound. They want to be doing the right things. And at the end of the day, win or loss, they want to know that they were out there and they were competing against the best competition in the entire country. I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see Brian Harson build this program up as as players shift from the previous regime scheme to Brian Harson and Mike Bobo's scheme. 
I think we're going to see a gradual progression. I don't know if it'll happen more in year two because you and I, Noah, have talked a little bit about what Auburn's losing this season and what could potentially be on Auburn's schedule next year, obviously playing Georgia and Alabama on the road. But I think this year could be a building block, like Jeremy said, something a lot of teams in, in the entire country don't have that Auburn has is a potential Heisman candidate in their backfield. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be top five coming into the season. I'm just saying a lot of people are hyping Tank Bigsby up to be that right now. And you can win some games with a running back like Bigsby in your backfield. I don't understand the vibe from folks that there's no talent on this roster. I think Malzahn left this coaching staff with a lot of talent. I think as evidenced by how excited this coaching staff was to get here and get to work, they have a vision that they're setting forward. I think that there's loads of talent on the roster. Auburn's recruited fine. They just need to be set in the right direction. If we were criticizing Malzahn for his scheme, which which we all were, we weren't criticizing him for the talent. We were criticizing for him. We were criticizing him for how he was using the talent. I think this coaching staff sets it on the right direction. I mean, you got seven starters returning on defense. You got possibly the best one-two punch at linebacker, at least a top two, top three one-two punch at linebacker between Jacoby McLean and Owen Papo. You have what I think is right up there with Alabama in terms of the best defensive backs in the entire country, at least across the board in the in the secondary. I think you end up with a great defense this year. The offense is what you're trying to pull around a little bit, but you, like you pointed out, Lance, you got a great running back. you got to pull around the, the receivers in the offensive line, but there's a lot to work with with this football team. Next year's doomsday for me because you lose like three-quarters of your football team, right. at least your starters, right? And so next year's doomsday for me, this is the year – where I think you have to succeed in order to help recruiting to lay the foundation this year. I would say next year is the building block year. More so this year, you lay the foundation with the experience, with the talent that you have. Use that to have a good, solid first year of recruiting that can set you up for success down the line three, four years from now. Also, don't forget, Bo Nix is still a former five-star quarterback, and Auburn's got two four-star wide receivers that are going to start for them this season that are at least six foot three. I mean, it's not like there's you went out there here. and d just got like some rinky-dink two-star, three-star players. I mean, these, some these are some big, physical, SEC-caliber players out there. I just worried about, like Noah's talking, I, I do see that forecast. We just can't let Brian Harson be a victim of his own success. I, he could go eight and four, nine and three this year, and I think that would excite a lot of people. But it's just going to be tough for for Harson and Auburn to go potentially nine and three, and there is a path for nine and three. Maybe even better if he can reel off a win against Texas A and M, and you could possibly say he should beat all the other guys. LSU is trying to bounce back. Ole Miss, you know, Lane Kiffin, they could be hot or cold depending on the day. Arkansas, the outlook's not great. Auburn's as talented as everyone on their schedule with the exception of Alabama and Georgia. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I agree with that. It's up and down the roster, 100%, I agree with you. But it's going to be tough for Harson to reel off a 9-3, and three, maybe a 10-2, and two, and 8-4 and four would still excite a lot of people if they do see that that competitive nature out of the team and then follow it up with the next year. I think if he hits the ground running this year, there's no turning back because the only thing that can kill you if you're Brian Harson right now is expectations. Undersell, overperform. And if he if he sells hard this year and he hits a nine and three, ten and two mark, it is going to be tough for him to follow that up with a twenty twenty two when you do lose a massive part of this roster and a good bit of your offensive line. And that's where Gus Malzahn didn't do him any favors, as evidenced by offensive line recruiting. Two thousand twenty two is a dark place 
for Auburn football on the offensive line because of how Malzahn recruited it. That's where he didn't do him any favors. I wouldn't say that this year's the year where he didn't do him any favors. I'd say it's next year's the problem for Coach Harson, where Malzahn really hurt this football program is the longevity. And you could see the writing on the wall with the offensive line and the program, and I think that's why they decided to step away from Malzahn this year. So I'm in agreement with you guys on that. But here's my question, and Jeremy said this, undersell, over-deliver. I think he's underselling right now. Every time that they have him in a press conference, every time that they have an assistant coach at a press conference throughout spring, they said this, we're a long way to go. That's right, and they, well, you and I had a deep dive on one of their specific press conferences about, well, how do we analyze all the things that Harson is saying specifically about some of Auburn's leaders and what he's been talking about quite a bit recently is that the leaders are going to get there, but this entire team is not where they want them to be right now, and Auburn's, Auburn's top-end players are going to get them there. It's just going to be a matter of time. They've not said anything other than we want to go out there, compete, we want to win the first – we want to keep it by week. We want to win the first game, one no mentality, and we want to get ourselves better. They've not said anything like, we're going to win national titles, we're going to go undefeated, we're going to do X. They're just getting out there literally fo- focused and having fun. I think that that tweet obviously gets blown out of proportion. I, I know I make that joke a lot here on this show to the point where it's probably, probably a little bit annoying, but I think that's a good motto for this team heading into 2021. Isn't isn't that where Gus also hurt himself, though? He's the opposite of Brian Harson. If he beat Georgia, yeah, we beat the dog crap out of him. If he beat Alabama at the trophy presentation, he says that the trophy's staying in Auburn forever. You, you, this is not the place. If you're going to, you got to. I like what Brian Harson's doing. He's not just throwing himself out there. He Brian Harson knows that it doesn't matter if everybody out in the media, in the fan base, thinks that he's going to win a national title or thinks that he's going to beat Alabama. It doesn't matter until you do it. And that's what I've liked about Brian Hart. His first, what, five, where we had five, four or five months, six months into his coaching tenure has been dead silent, and he's working on his program. I like it. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the NIL debate that's heating up. We discussed that a lot on yesterday's show. We're going to get Jeremy Law's thoughts. He's with us for the entire show today. Jeremy Law, Radio Alabama Sports, with us on the line. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. We'll be right back. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call, 334-321-1390. It's a free-for-all with Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports with us. Call in, once again, 334-321-1390. Keep up with all the content the show is putting out on RadioAlabamaSports.net and on the Radio Alabama Sports Facebook page. Follow it on Twitter as well, at Radio AL Sports. Between collegiate and high school sports content, we've got you covered once again. That's RadioAlabamaSports.net. Shifting the conversation now a little bit away from Auburn football for a moment and going back to what we were talking about yesterday with the NIL debate. We haven't gotten Jeremy's thoughts on this yet, but of course it's been a hotly contested topic throughout this week after you hear what the Supreme Court wrote about their decision on the NCAA and some of their comments, and now players are going to be able to get paid. Jeremy, what do you make of everything going on? I like it and I hate it. I hate when things are regulated and this is a deregulation of what 
these student athletes should and should not um, be able to do. So, you know, people, somebody, I saw a tweet that said you know, the government stepping in. The government didn't really step in. All the government did was step in and say, nobody should step in and stop you from doing what you're doing. They essentially leveled the free market on everybody and said, this is how, this is how we do it in the USA. So what you're doing, the NCAA is actually illegal. There's a free market that these, that these adults should be able to partake in. And I, I just think the the line is now blurred so far. We've been coming to this point guys for a long time. I think Zach was on your show yesterday. I believe I was listening in and I kind of had the same thoughts as him. It's it's cool, but it's also where is there ever a line that can be drawn now? Can can um, Apple say, all right, every Auburn player is going to get a million dollars this year because our CEO went here? You know, is it uh, yeah? Like where does it stop endorsements? Hey, Bryce Young, the biggest car dealership in Tuscaloosa, who also is one of our biggest boosters, wants you to. Um, do a commercial for him, and it pays $200,000 every time it airs. I mean, like, where is the line, guys? Do y'all have those questions? Like, where where is this going? How is this going to fill out as we go down the stretch here? And and also, now are, this, are these guys employees? Because if you become an employees, it, the, a lot of this stuff doesn't become optional either. Like, there, you know what I'm saying? It's like this, you work here. You don't go to school here. You work here. Uh, there's a lot of questions in a way that they're differentiating that is saying that the school can't dole out any payments to these players so they still have kept that line they they have drawn that line they've kept those two separate these players are just able to look for commercial opportunities outside of the school but I think everybody's asking a ton of questions right now and they're all really valid questions. If you're if you're looking at this from a serious perspective and you're asking a question, it's probably a legitimate question at this point because I asked this yesterday, say in basketball, Jabari Smith decided that he wanted to sign a shoe deal with Under Armour. That works out fine and good because he's going to Auburn, but what if he signed a shoe deal with Nike and then was coming to Auburn? How does that work? Who, who knows? I really don't know how this is going to work. Yeah, we're talking about money. The schools can't shovel out money, but now there's so many ways to shovel out money. The school doesn't have to do it. The school isn't technically doing it right now. It's but they can call right their now. rich buddy to do it. Absolutely. There are boosters and boosters and boosters lined up across this entire state. Big money type of people who could shovel it out nonstop. And now you really don't have to hide it. All you got to do is say that this is a compensation for services. So, I mean, how do you figure that out? I think every question right now is a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of questions. And it's, at what point is this just not college athletics anymore? Um, you know, and I don't really have a problem with the direction it's going. I think if I was one of these guys, I would – if I was Tua, I would want it. But, I mean, how, I mean just think about your – like Alabama's um, – Landon Dickerson, great player, Remington Trophy winner. What's his value? Almost nothing. I mean, if you really think about it, other than getting him on campus, his value in the market for shoe deals, his value in the market for Subway commercials or Gillette commercials is nothing. So it's really just about getting the guys on campus. Two things. You asked a question about collegiate athletics. Collegiate athletics, it's still collegiate athletics because they're playing in college. Amateurism if not already dead, it is dying. 
So amateurism's done away with almost now. But collegiate athletics will still always be collegiate athletics because these guys are doing this, are doing their sports at universities, right? And then I forgot my second point. Lance, go ahead. Something that I don't think has been brought up, or at least I've not seen it. I don't necessarily think this is going to be an issue, but you talk about the quality in the sport and what we saw during March Madness and a lot of a lot of people complaining about what we saw there between the men and the women's uh, weight rooms, you're going to probably see some inequality. It, at least it'll be on the surface of like, well, all of these male athletes are getting these these deals if there are any to be made. So the question has to be asked, like, is this fair to other smaller sports or other sports that are being played by women? It's like, there are definitely going to be people that complain about that. That is going to happen. If this is is in place, people will complain about that. And I just remember my second point, going back to what Jeremy was saying about calling a rich buddy and the, and there's just more venues now for money to be doled out, but it's still not the university. There are now loopholes. That there, It seems like there's a larger loophole now to allow what was cheating in the past to now occur in a non-cheating manner. Yeah, and going back to what Lance just told, I thought about what Lance just said. I know he said nobody's mentioned it, but I've actually at least thought about it as the, these people that really were pushing for this are probably in such a conundrum right now because there is no way... But well, first of all, women's sports in college don't generate revenue. The only reason right. they are, and they are great athletes. I'm not saying they're not good athletes, but they don't generate revenue. Right. The only reason that they're there is to match scholarship is because of Title IX. And I think Title IX has done a great thing. It has given tons of girls the same opportunities as guys to go out, especially in the college world, and get an education. However, there's no revenue generated. So now, I mean, there's just going to be so many people complaining about, well, this guy got this. Why is this booster not calling me to give money because I'm the star point guard for UConn women's basketball? Maybe that one player for UConn, but what about the other thousands of female basketball players across the, the inequality? You're right, Lance. It's just going to go. Boys sports are about to skyrocket. Girls sports probably stay where they are, and a lot of people are going to have questions about that as well because what keeps women's sports alive in college right now is Title IX, and it's great that women are out there competing and playing at the highest level. I just think this causes a little bit more inequality because this is the free market. All excellent points about the NIL debate. There's just so much that can be unraveled through this, and I said this yesterday, and Jeremy, I know you have some strong opinions about this. Amateurism, if not gone away with now, will be soon. But it seems like this could be the end of the NCAA as we know it. Yeah, and I'm thinking that if this, if college football, let's just say college football and college basketball take off into a professionalism manner where it's not, if it's not scholarship-based, like you're going here to do school and sports, because this is the direction it's heading. You can say that's not how it is right now. That's where it's going. So you're talking about 85 less female scholarships automatically on campus because you, these these athletics departments are businesses. They're businesses. So if these schools could find a way to cut 85 scholarships away from any type of sport, so that's 85 girls' scholarships probably gone. Plus, if basketball takes into that, was that 15 more? You're talking about 100 less potential female scholarships for these big-time universities that they would cut away just because it costs a lot of money to get it done in non-revenue generating sports. There are a lot of after effects of this, Lance and Noah, and I'm not sure everybody is ready for the repercussions, but it's the free market. That's all. Now that's what everybody's going to say. Hey, 
it's the free market. I'm a free market guy. I know you two probably are as well, but that there's a lot of repercussions for what's about to happen inside of college football. Not only that, and you, we can we can sit here and, and talk about how women's sports are going to have an issue, but think about not just women's sports, but some of the, the men's athletics as well that are smaller sports like golf or lacrosse or right. soccer, and maybe you can go back to women's say like softball and equestrian. It's like, what's going to happen to those sports? Are they just going to non- be non-existent? Because here's my thing. If I'm coming out of high school as an athlete, I'm not going to play golf. I'm not going to play soccer. I might not even go play baseball. I'm going to play basketball or football because that's going to get me the most attention. And how do you, I mean, just, just to more than what you're saying is, you know, like that's just so, it just changes the entire landscape of college athletics. It's not just about women's sports, but how many sports actually generate revenue? I think it's just two, right? That some places college baseball might generate some form of revenue, but mainly in the big time college world, it's, men's basketball and college football and that's about it you're talking about way more than just girl sports you're right lance golf any any anything else it could all just be kind of blown up right here especially if the ncaa dissipates and disappears the way that a lot of people think it will yesterday's show we had a caller ask a question about markets matt called in yesterday asking about markets and what advantages larger cities might have over smaller markets such as auburn or tuscaloosa jeremy do you think that will play a role because we had some mixed discussion about that yesterday uh i'm not so sure it matters in college college is built off the small town college feel right now in the pros you want to be in especially say the nba right now you want to be in in la boston miami you know, you want to be in those cities because there's just you're everywhere. You're on TV. It's nonstop. But listen, Alabama and Auburn are on TV plenty. The TV deals now make it so where every SEC, the $300 million a year contract or whatever whatever that contract was that ESPN SEC just signed to start in 2023, 24, whatever year it is, that they're going to get national exposure. That is your market. The SEC game of the week that ESPN just got is a national type game of the week. It's not just secluded down here in the southeast it has eyeballs on it from around the country i don't think that's a major problem in college football but you if you go to usc it might help you know if you're going to if you're going to be a trojan if you're going to be a georgia bulldog in atlanta you don't know we're going to take a quick break here and when we come back we'll continue that conversation also a lot of folks out there saying bo Nix is having fun and possibly a dark horse for the heisman what does that mean we'll be back in just a few moments Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl joined by Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net for the entire show today here on this free-for-all Friday. If you want to call in, 334-321-1390. We want to hear from you. Anything that's on your mind, 334-321-1390. Just talked a little bit about the name-image likeness debate that's been going on throughout this week and a little bit of last week. Also talked a bit about Auburn's first-year records of their last five coaches and why this year is not going to hold back Brian Harson from a successful season. Now let's talk a little bit about Bo Nix, the major cog that needs to improve in this Auburn offense. There's a lot of folks out there. There's that meme that Lance continues to refer to saying that Bo Nix is focused, having fun, that he's going to improve in this new scheme. 
I even saw maybe Jeremy brought this to my attention. Jeremy, there's like a T-shirt going around with the horse with a number ten on it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a dark horse with wearing wearing a number ten and uh. I, was it Barstool Auburn? Maybe somebody made it. I, I looked at it and I laughed because it was funny. Not because they're saying Bonex win the Heisman. I just thought it was a funny shirt. But a lot of that is it, becoming a kind of a thing on the plains where Bonex truly a dark horse for the Heisman Trophy. So good little Heisman Trophy debate. In what month is this? The end of June. So it, this should be fun. Realistic, what, realistically, why will Bonex be better in 2021? I don't know if we could answer that. Sorry. I don't know if we can it can answer that because if you if there's anything he's got things going against him except for scheme change right well you could be like well look at the guys that he's throwing to while they're extremely inexperienced and young the only thing that I can think of is the scheme changing for him to make him more comfortable make him more accurate but the players that he has around him I don't think are going to boost his numbers to get him closer to the Heisman I think it's got to be scheme change no, Gus Malzahn's offense, I'm sure as Auburn fans, y'all read the book, the hurry up, no huddle book that Gus wrote. It's not set up for your quarterback to have a great passing game. It's not. It's set up for opening run lanes. It's created off deception at the point of attack, um, pre-snap a little bit. But it, it's not set up for Bo Nix to, to have great numbers unless there's busted coverages off of his own read fake. And I think you're going to see a lot more RPO this year. I think you're going to see more passing concepts where a lot like Alabama and a lot of better programs last year were running routes to get other routes open as opposed to four verts or two in, two posts running at each other that Gus Malzahn really liked to do, especially, I mean, four guys down the field was Gus Malzahn's, you know, big third and sixth play, just run and we'll throw it to you. So I think a scheme change could not hurt Bo Nix. It can only help Bo Nix. And I think, I think you're going to see a much improved and a calmer Bo Nix in the pocket with Brian Harson um, at the helm. Let's get into a different discussion here. Jeremy came up with this idea when we were prepping for the show. Top three Heisman dark horses for 2021. Let's go around the let's go around the room now. Then we got three. Each of us have come up with at least three. Lance, I'm going to start it off with you. Who is one of your top three Heisman dark horses for 2021? And and I'm curious to see if any of y'all have any Auburn players in this bunch. I had so many players on this list. It was really really hard to narrow it down to three. At number three, I'll go with Brees Hall from Iowa oh, I State. It. I think that he could be somebody that we look at at the end of the season and say statistically he should be he should be in contention for the Heisman has had some really good seasons for the Cyclones in the last couple of years I looked at Brock Purdy and all I can think of was like man I hope neither of y'all have him on your dark horse for the Heisman list not because he's a terrible quarterback but because I think that Brees Hall is going to eat in this in this Iowa State offense so I at three I've got Brees Hall especially if they win the big win the big 12 behind him I could see him definitely getting some recognition in New York come into the season I agree with you on Brees Hall. Brees Hall's on my list. He had 1,572 yards rushing last year, 5.6 yards per carry, 21 touchdowns. He helped him out in the receiving game as well. 23 catches, 180 yards, 7.8 yards per carry, two touchdowns, and that was in an abbreviated season. Now, of course, this is in the Big 12, but I don't think that really matters in the scope of the Heisman. You look at how many Oklahoma players have won it. You had a Baylor player win it in the last 10 years. This award's kind of made for Big 12 players, right? Because they can put up numbers. The question is, is this award made for running backs? And what he's got going for him, 
There's two boxes that you really have to check if you're going to be a running back that are really maybe maybe three, and he checks two of the three, but he's got a good offensive line in front of him, and his usage rate is high. So he's going to get the touches that he needs to put up the absurd stats to be able to win the Heisman Award as a running back because you're competing against quarterbacks for this thing. And inherently, it's already more difficult for a running back to get anywhere near what quarterback numbers can be especially when you look at some of the QBs that are coming back this year in college football around the country, some of the numbers that they put up. It's just easy for him to get to 3,500 yards now in today's day and age. The big question mark about Brees Hall and what could hold him back from winning the Heisman is, will Iowa State win enough games and will, be, or, and will they be in the national view enough? Will enough people be watching Iowa State football all year long for Brees Hall to get the votes? And I think we all know the answer to that is no. I think they can get to nine, ten wins. I think this team could actually get pretty scary close for Iowa State, heart palpitations close for Iowa State to make a college football playoff because this is one of the most complete teams in college football. The problem is the talent isn't quite there from you know, compared to Oklahoma or even Texas with the way that they recruit. Super experienced, excellent fundamental football team. It's going to be a ten-win team probably this year, at least nine really complete football team but I just don't think he's going to be in the national scope enough it's like what happens with Pac-12 players that just don't get watched enough Jeremy oh yeah they're, listen, they're not going to win enough they're not going to be in the national stage enough to win I was going to let Lance finish his list I'm intrigued <laughs> so at number two I have and this may be a little bit weird but we're talking dark horses here we're not talking candidates for the Heisman we're not talking bona fide candidates right out the gates Dillian Gabriel, quarterback Ooh, from UCF. Why did I not think of him? Boys, this could go two ways. The first way, obviously, is Gus Malzahn, like Jeremy mentioned, could install his scheme and not allow Dillian Gabriel to, to truly unlock his potential as a quarterback and just ruin him statistically. Or this Gus Malzahn offense could absolutely pop off at the group of five level and UCF could be averaging 50 a game behind Dillian Gabriel. And we could see him as a finalist. I'm not saying that he could win. I'm not saying that he could definitely win it. I'm not saying he's a bona fide candidate. I'm not even saying the competition that he goes up against, if he plays well, could, could put him in that spot. I'm just saying from a number standpoint, we could be looking at this at the end of the season. Do y'all remember? I think it was in 2013 or 2014. Actually, it might have been 2012. That Northern Illinois quarterback that finished third in Heisman voting. I forget his Jordan name. Jordan Lynch. Jordan Lynch. We could see something very similar with Dillian Gabriel this season the big question about Gabriel and the UCF football team is the same one that I asked about Iowa State will they will they be in the national scope enough will people be watching enough UCF football to be like yeah that guy deserves to win the Heisman he'll have to put up absurd numbers He'll have to put up near 5,000 yards mm -hmm. to win a Heisman, right? Like, right. And, and that's not happening in college football. I mean, he's going to have to have an NFL MVP-like season, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's not happening in college football. That's not happening in college football with a Gus Malzahn-like offense. But I like the, the direction that you went there. Easy defenses to play against. And that offense already is primed and ready to score 40 a game because that's what they did last year. And he's got a lot of skill position guys coming back you know around him too. Something I didn't realize, and this is we've probably talked about this before, but I just forgot about it, is UCF plays Boise State week one. They do. They also play Louisville in the non-con schedule. That is hilarious to me. And I'll go ahead and finish my list, and then I'll quickly get to my honorable mentions, just run through their names real quick. At number one, I have De'Eric King. 
and this may be a little weird, but again, we're not talking about bona fide Heisman candidates. We're talking about people that are dark horses that if they had a really good season at year's end, we could see them in New York. If Miami beats Alabama week one, a lot of eyes are going to be on Derek King throughout the rest of the season. If they make it to the ACC title game and Derek King somehow finds a way to win that, I see a scenario where, where Miami runs the table and he could be a, a Heisman candidate at the end of the season. I don't even think he has to beat Alabama in week one. I just think he has to be competitive. I think he has to look good, right? And I think right. we all know that the only way that remotely Miami competes on the same playing field as Alabama in week one is if Derek King pops off. Right, and Bryce Young doesn't which I'm not saying is going to happen. I'm just saying Derek King has been around uh, college football long enough to be able to sustain offense and to be able to score some points. I don't know if uh, you look at his numbers last season at Miami. I think it was like 23 touchdowns to five interceptions, but I could see those numbers jump this season because he is still a really talented dual threat quarterback. And I'll quickly run through some of my honorable mentions here. We've got Casey Thompson, the, uh, the quarterback at Texas, Jarek Broussard, the running back at Colorado, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, the quarterback at UCLA, Matt Corral, quarterback at Ole Miss, and C.J. Stroud, quarterback at Ohio State, if he starts. Those Man, are my honorable mentions. Yeah, we shouldn't have let him do that. <laughs> those are my honorable mentions. Now, if y'all have y'all have those on your list, you can go a little bit more into detail. But did, those, you, did you say any Auburn guys? No, I did not. You didn't put Tank Bigsby in there? Tank Bigsby. As much as you've talked about Tank no, no, Bigsby. No, 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 Tank Bigsby is a bona fide Heisman candidate. Oh, really? He's not a dark horse. Boy, really? Yes. Story. <laughs> Derek King is on my Heisman, like a legit Heisman contender list, especially considering what he has the potential to do early in the season. I'll run through a couple of these guys. My uh, my probably biggest dark horse. How about a guy that's going to have a feel good story that everybody's going to want to see, that everybody's going to want to have a a chance to look at, and and I, th I think Mackenzie Milton, right? Florida that's State. right. Florida that's State. right. Yeah. I think Mackenzie Milton moving over from UCF. He's now at a Power Five program that has a history of winning Heisman trophies. Jameis Winston just did it a dec what a decade ago, eight years ago. I think Mackenzie Milton, if he comes out and he plays the same way he did before the injury, um, he could be a dark horse if they can pull off an upset over Clemson and maybe and beat a Miami somewhere along the line. Possibly beat a name brand in Florida. It just depends on his stats. They have Matt Corral in there as well. I think he's just going to be able to put up so many numbers. And what if Ole Miss pulls off a couple upsets this year? Say they're able to beat Auburn at the end of the year. They beat Mississippi State. They're sitting around 10-2, and 9-3. And, and he has 40 touchdowns, 4,200 yards in a, in a full season. I think you could really be talking. People would want to see Matt Corral. Not that he's going to win it, but people could be talking about Matt Corral. All right, and these are my two biggest dark horses for the Heisman Trophy Huge dark horses, but if these guys have a dominant year, I think you just saw a receiver win it for the first time since Desmond Howard. Let's talk about defense. Kavion Thibodeau at Oregon. A lot of people are projecting him to lead the nation in sacks. Everybody thinks that he is the key difference maker in the Pac-12 overall, maybe outside of Kadon Slovis at USC, who I think is a legitimate Heisman contender. If Thibodeau can come out and dominate games the way everybody is expecting him to dominate games, I would not be surprised if he had one of those seats like Indomitian Sue had in 08, 09, whatever year that was, in New York, but having a legitimate chance to take the trophy home. 
I wish defensive players could win this award. <laughs> you know why Athlon is not is not always 100% accurate? It's because they have Mackenzie Milton as the projected backup to Jordan Travis at Florida State. If Mackenzie Milton starts week one against Notre Dame at home, Florida State will win that game. Wait, they play Notre Dame in week one? Week one, Notre Dame at home. Seriously? That's week one? That is week one. September 5th, Florida State at home against Notre Dame. Oh, that's on Labor Day. A Jack Cohn-led... Notre Dame team. That's on Labor Day. I think I that, just find it hard to believe that Milton would sit through a, a year where he could transfer again mm-hmm. and, and stay on a roster that he's not going to start on. Maybe he's comfortable being in the state of Florida, but I feel like given this extra COVID year and the portal just opened and McKenzie Milton would get out of there and go to a team that he could start at his final year. Yeah, Jordan Travis is good, but if, if I have McKenzie Milton in my quarterback room, if he's fully healthy, I'm starting him. What makes me uncomfortable about McKenzie Milton going to FSU is talk about a place that really left like a coach leaving a cupboard bare for the next coach to come in. And Norvell really hasn't done a whole lot. Last year was a really bad year. There's not a whole lot around McKenzie Milton right now. Of course, Florida State recruits well, but they look pretty darn bad everywhere. I mean, they only averaged 25.8 points per game last year. That was 85th nationally, gave up 36 a game. I'm scared for McKenzie Milton going here because it, it like made sense leaving UCF to go to FSU that you would think that that was like a step up. But in terms of like ability to succeed, he might have been better suited. And of course, Dylan Gabriel, Dylan Gabriel took a spot, but maybe he would have been better off choosing another location that maybe there wasn't as much of a high degree of difficulty. There's still a rebuild going on at FSU right now. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that, but at the same time, like I, I can definitely see Milton stepping in and just being the special quarterback that he is, and, and leading them to some wins here on this schedule uh, that they may not get with a guy like Travis, like like Jeremy said, maybe going on the road and being beating Clemson. We've seen Clemson fold to to random ACC schools in the past. Why not Florida State? You get to play at North Carolina. That should be a really fun game if Milton's actually playing well. Uh, you get Miami at home. You get to play at Florida. Everybody's kind of penciling that as a Florida win, but you got to be able to keep in mind if Florida State does somehow hit their stride and they are sitting at, sitting at eight or nine wins this season, that's kind of where Florida's sitting at as well. So that should be a competitive game for the first time in a while. And then again, that Notre Dame game at home should be really, really fun to watch because you all know how much I love Notre Dame here. And it's not simply because I, I just don't like Notre Dame, therefore I'm going to pick them to lose every game, but I, I would go with the Seminoles right now if Milton's starting. I'm, I would feel fairly confident that Florida State wins that game. Let's take a quick break here. I'll get to my dark horses later on in the show in hour number two. When we come back, we're going to talk a little NBA basketball, Eastern Conference Finals, Game 2 between the Hawks and the Bucks tonight. We got some thoughts on that coming up. You're listening to On the Line. Back on All the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. We have Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports with us for the full two hours today here on this Free For All Friday. we got a caller on the line with this number to call, 334-321-1390. We want to hear from you. Travis is on the line with us. Travis, how's your Friday going, my man? <laughs> it's good, guys. I tell you, man, I, I think J-Lo knows he's found out my calling schedule. <laughs> he's coming anyway, on every, every Friday. time I call every time I call he's on the line but uh you know I, I'm glad he's here today because my first topic of discussion is I, I heard Shane's call a couple weeks ago and uh look guys nobody dislikes J-Law more than me and and, and 
as much as I disagree with just about everything that comes out of his mouth, I would never call him a name like that on the radio. And, and, and in my opinion, Auburn University and the Auburn fan base prides itself on being a family and being true Auburn men. And what Shane said was the exact opposite of that. I mean, the, the Auburn creed literally says to believe in Auburn and love it. And if you respect the creed, then you have to be a true Auburn man and be better than that. And I know he called and gave a, a kind of a half-hearted apology, in my opinion, but, you know, you got to calm yourself down whenever you're on hold. I understand that guys like J-Lo – they're made, it's just like Paul Feinbaum. They're made to, to rustle feathers, and especially on the Auburn show, but you've got to calm yourself down on, when you're on the hold. cannot be crossed, and any experienced caller knows that. So Shane has a lot to learn in that regard. You know, Shane called back in, and, and, and look, it, it's it's all in good fun, I think, a lot of times. Jeremy knows that it's all in good fun. It, it's, uh, it's Sports Talk Radio. I know we've all been listening to the radio for a long time. If you listen to Paul Feinbaum, you listen to any sports talk show host in the Southeast, we all take it in, in, in stride. We we enjoy getting people calling in. We enjoy when people rib us. We we enjoy that. Like, that makes it fun for us. And so, like, I, I, I like callers. I love people calling in. Even, even when it gets intense sometimes, I really do enjoy it. And I think that's what makes it fun. And uh, and so, but I, uh, yeah, yeah I, think that, I think that's a good way to put it. Now, look, having said that, J-Lo, Justice Spankley and Shamar James have both committed to play football out of the state. And all you was talking about was a couple weeks ago, uh, everybody in state's going to Bama, Auburn's not going to get nobody. Curtis Perry, I'm telling you, he's going to Auburn, 100%. Nobody really knows what the Traquan Fagans kid out of Oxford is going to do. Wouldn't really surprise me if he ends up at Georgia. And I truly believe that Caden Story, whose brother plays at Alabama, I think that he chooses his own legacy and ends up going to Auburn. He's not incredibly highly ranked. He's about 180th in the country. And, uh, and I think he slips under Alabama's radar. I think he goes to Auburn. And so if, that, if that's to happen, then you're looking at like five of the top 15 in-state guys going to the Plains. Alabama might get six. So tell me what you think about that. It kind of looks like Harson's – going to catch saving sooner rather than later when it comes to in-state recruiting. Travis, first of all, I didn't say how many were going to Bama. I said I don't think more than two of the top oh, ten. Oh, you, you implied. You ain't, you ain't got to tell me. You implied it. But I didn't say it. So that the, the jury is still out on that prediction. And I, I think you would probably agree that it felt like Shamar James was going to Alabama. Well, he takes Florida. So that's one off the board for Alabama. It's also one off the board for Auburn. Um, and we'll see how things go down the stretch. Uh, Shamar James, I think his crystal ball is still pretty heavy towards Alabama. So we'll see how all the, how all the, uh, thing that, you know, the eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed uh, down the stretch, but it, that this in-state recruiting could get, uh, uh, a little fun to watch and it may not be Alabama and Auburn for some of these guys So we'll see. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at, at this point, I mean, anybody that doesn't go to Alabama, especially out of the state, it's gotta be a win for Auburn, especially a top 200 player. And so, yeah, he might not go to Auburn, but I don't think Auburn was ever really very high on Shamar James' list or Justice Finkley's for that matter. But, hey, you know, if they don't go to Auburn, don't you consider that – or if they don't go to Alabama, don't you consider that a win for the Tigers? Yeah, honestly, Travis, I will, we will agree on that point. If, Auburn, if these players leave the state, they don't go to Alabama, it is a win for Auburn. 
Guys, we got to head to our end of the hour break. Travis, we appreciate you calling in, my man. All right, War Eagle, guys. War Eagle. That was Travis on the line with us. If you want to call in, number to call, 334-321-1390. Still another hour to go. We'll be back with more of On the Line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Hour number two, joined by Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net. Had a fun hour number one, and if you want to call in, 334-321-1390. Ended that second hour with that call from Shane. Oh, yeah, that's right, Travis. My bad, I don't know why I was... He's talking about I, that's Shane. right, but Travis Travis called in. My bad. If you want to call in three three four three two one thirteen ninety, Travis was talking to us about some Auburn football recruiting. How some guys leaving the state right now aren't Alabama commits, aren't Auburn commits either, but headed away. So what does that mean in the scope of recruiting? I think that's important to dig into here, guys. We had to cut that call short because it was the end of the hour. Lance, you didn't get to say anything. What's up? Yeah, I think as far as like battling in state, we've talked about this a little bit on the show. As far as the first couple of years, actually, I think we talked with Jeremy about this exact same subject just a couple of weeks ago about Auburn trying to battle for some of these in-state guys. And my opinion is it doesn't matter year one. I'm not looking at these guys and I'm not arguing over whether or not they're going to Auburn, whether they're going to Alabama or Georgia. I don't care because that's obviously not what this coaching staff cares about. They care about getting guys from outside the state first. It's very apparent in the way that they're bringing guys on campus right now. So we can argue and speculate about that all all we want as Auburn fans, but at the end of the day, I think it's probably going to lean all Alabama or Georgia or somewhere outside of the state, at least year one. And until Harson gets some of these guys outside of the state to commit and to prove that he can actually recruit in different places, we're not going to see Auburn go after these in-state guys. So, so that's just that's where I stand on it. It's not that important right now. It's definitely been more of a national search yes. throughout this offseason rather than really putting a ton of emphasis on these in-state guys. I think he'd like to get them. I just really wonder what those relationships are like at the moment and Auburn's legitimacy also at getting some of the dudes outside the state. Jeremy, this has been a national recruiting search. What do you think about Auburn's legitimacy and recruiting outside of the Southeast? Will these guys actually commit? Because I think about the tight end, Micah Riley Ducker, who has Iowa, Iowa State, and Illinois in his top four joined by Auburn. Auburn's the oddball out of that group when you talk about culturally and compared to those universities. Those universities use tight ends. Auburn does it on the field, but also you got the Midwest culture. Auburn's an out is an outlier in some of these top fours, top fives that you see from kids outside the Southeast. Kind of makes me wonder if they'll actually commit to Auburn or one of the other schools that are like each other. In state, I think you guys are right. It's going to be very hard for Brian Harson to come in this first year as recruiting wise and build these strong relationships with a lot of these kids. Very surprising to me 
that Finkley and James leave the state. Um, we've seen a lot of kids from down south go up to die with Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. I mean, uh, and I don't really understand that. But I can see why Shamar James would go to Florida. Um, he's a guy that's playing a lot of offense right now for Faith Academy. Silicaga played Faith Academy in the first round of the playoffs. I got to see Shamar James uh, uh, in person uh, as advertised, I would say. Um, that he played receiver, quarterback, and linebacker. I think Dan Mullen kind of sold him on chances of playing a little bit of offense as well. I think Alabama and the other SEC schools were probably leaning towards putting him at linebacker or potentially maybe bulking down a tad and playing a little uh, free safety. So we'll see. Those two, very surprising. But Auburn recruiting nationally, I think Brian Harson is going to try to fill spots and needs. He's not really worried about, okay, Alabama's got great talent. I'd love to have great talent. But I think he's looking at his roster, thinking about next year when a lot of these guys leave, where where are those needs going to be? And if he needs to go pick a tight end out of the Midwest, if he needs to go find a, a, a speedy running back somewhere out west, you know, southwest Texas, you, um, Los Angeles, California, whatever, I think Brian Harson is overall right now looking at needs and depth. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of kids around the country that would love to play SEC football. Fun fact, uh, I actually uh, took first grade at Faith Academy. So go cool. Rams. There you go. The more you know. There you go. Your your dad was like an assistant coach over there, right? Y- yeah, my dad coached with uh, with Coach Pruitt there for a few years. And so that, that, was, so th- cool. th- th- that was my tie to the Faith Academy Rams. That is so cool. That is. All right, well, let's switch it over now. Auburn football schedule analysis series. We talked about Georgia yesterday. We're still talking about Georgia today because we only got to go through half of the football team. Lance has put together grades for each of the individual position groups. We talked about the offense yesterday. Now it's on to the defense. And this could be the side of the football, believe it or not, that could hold the Bulldogs back this year. I want to get all of our thoughts on this as we go from position group to position group. And let's start it off in that front seven, defensive line and linebackers. Defensive line, I have graded as an A. Of course, somebody could talk me down to a B. Two starters returned from a unit that was first nationally in rushing yards per game. Athlon, again, another inaccuracy here. They only have one starter returning, but Jordan Davis, number 99, that nose tackle, a senior, started seven games last season for the Bulldogs. So I'm going to count him as a returning starter. They were 11th in the country in sacks per game last season. They had 32. I mean, this is the this is a unit that is very, very talented, very, very big. Jordan Davis sitting at 6'6", 6'7", 320 as a nose tackle. I mean, that is just an absolute unit. This Georgia defense is incredibly talented from a recruiting standpoint. The numbers reflect that they're good. They may not be the best in the country, but they are definitely A-worthy for me. I think that they're going to stop the run well. My question is the pass rush. Last year, they were a solid pass rushing unit. They generated a lot of sacks, but as you've already pointed out, they don't bring a whole lot back on that front. And in the 3-4, defenses like that, younger defenses out of the 3-4, sometimes have a hard time generating a pass rush. Yeah, interestingly enough, actually, you go and look at their sacks, and I believe most of them actually came from that linebacking core. Aziz Ojolari was the guy that led this team in sacks last season at 8.5, so I'm right there with you. he's gone. I'm right there with you. They may be able to stop the run. They may be able to get, get after the quarterback just a little bit, but it's going to be these linebackers at the end of the day that actually get some sacks. Only four or five total returning starters across this entire defense, give or take, of course, because some guys started like half the season, so however you want to view that. But, Jeremy, do you foresee this front seven at Georgia being par for the course like most years, or does it take a little bit of a step back this year? 
a, a younger Kirby Smart defense scares me. And when he was at Alabama, I don't know if you guys heard the phrase, but when I was in school at Bama, um, you know, third down, we, we just never thought we were. I mean, even when I would say post 2011, so 2012 and newer, or more recent rather, when Kirby was at Alabama, Alabama just it just felt like they didn't get off the field against spread offenses on third down. They called it third and Kirby. And I think you saw it a lot when Alabama played Georgia this year. I think you saw it a lot when Florida played Georgia this year. Their defense is third down. They you just get killed. And I think Kirby Smart is great of a defensive mind that he is. He just he gets he gets out schemed on third downs a lot of times by these really good OCs like your Steve Sarkeesians or your Dan Mullins of the world. So a young Kirby Smart defense trying to play in the complexity that he likes to play with. We've seen Nick Saban and some other guys dial back the defense. Kirby's probably done it a little, but it's still very complex. You start off the year um, if you're Georgia, and, and you're gonna you might take some lumps early. I do think that will be the the hindrance for Georgia this year. Will be the defense. I think the offense is going to be fine. I think JT Daniels is going to be a top three SEC quarterback this year. I think that he's going to be just fine. He's going to be up there with Bryce Young and Matt Corral and. And some of the other guys in conference, can the defense hold up? He, in the East, Phil Steele, the most, you know, probably the best picker, if you will, uh, of all the college football pickers, preseason picks. He's got Georgia winning the East, which means if they can get to Atlanta and win the SEC title, they're going to be back in the college football playoffs. So we'll see. Jeremy, did you get your magazine? I have. I didn't get it this year. I was, I was like a six years in a row guy until last year. And then didn't the Phil Steele magazine, it, it was – for pre-COVID or it was set up like with yeah. the real schedules on it last year. So last year, we, not his fault. So I didn't buy one. And I'll probably now that you're putting the peer pressure on me, I might head to Walmart or something later and grab one. Well, there's word that they're in Tuscaloosa, which makes me wonder. And I don't, I don't know exactly where these were being shipped out of, but there's word that they're in Tuscaloosa. And so I'm wondering if they've made their way to where we're at here in Auburn, if they're up 280 where you're at in Silicaga. Let me know, man. Text me because I, I got to go get mine. I've seen pictures of people that have theirs. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm surprised. You're usually last year you had one. You were reading it like it mattered last year when it didn't matter because the the stuff and it was wrong. I was living in fantasy land, but I'll tell you, man. Like I, I legit may be the first person in the Auburn Opelika area every year to get the magazine. Something I do want to point out quickly about Georgia's linebacking core. I wanted to make sure that I was correct. It, I was saying that their linebackers were the ones that actually got their sacks last season. That actually is true. Their top five leaders in sacks last year all came from their linebacking core. Malik Herring, the defensive lineman, was the highest on this list with only two sacks. So credit to Georgia getting their linebacking core to actually get to 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 actually get to the quarterback. But you're exactly right, Noah. This defensive line does not get after the quarterback well. So how do you expect those linebackers to play then? They've lost a lot as well at that second level. Well, they returned two starters, and they actually returned their top two tacklers from last season. If you want to go down the list of the guys that actually got sacks last season, obviously Aziz Ojolari, number one. He's not coming back. Adam Anderson at six and a half sacks is going to be back. Jermaine Johnson at four is gone. Channing Tindall at three sacks is going to be back. And then Noling Smith at two and a half is going to be gone. I do put stock in Georgia's ability to recruit this position. I do put stock in the fact that th this unit also had a hand in only allowing 72.3 rushing yards per game last season. Again, first in the country. And they do bring back two starters and their top two tacklers overall from this defense did come from that linebacking core. They seem to be a very, the most productive unit uh, out of this defense year in and year out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grade this unit as an A. 
Uh, I, I trust this. I trust Georgia and Kirby Smart to get the guys that they need to out on the field. And at the end of the day, I think they're just more talented than a lot of other teams in the country. Nicobe Dean coming back definitely boosts the unit a bit. About half of the sack production back is what it sounds like. I still think they're going to be good at stopping the run. I think that this Georgia team is from the front seven's perspective takes a massive step back maybe in generating actual sacks. Pressures are great, but sacks are that next step. You got to get home. Those shut down drives. Any any loss of yardage, typically that will that will shut down a drive. It is so much harder to recover from a penalty, a tackle for loss, or a sack. Georgia won't have that element as much this year as they have had in years past with a lack of experience that they do in the front seven. But talk about a lack of experience. They've tried to replace this now in the secondary with various transfers like Darian Kendrick from Clemson and then Tyke Smith from West Virginia. That's about as star-studded as it got this offseason in defensive back transfers. And Georgia got both of them, and they typically have some of the best defensive backs in the entire country. I think they've got two right there, but the question is, is the unit complete enough in the secondary? Right, and that's the question. I I went back and forth on whether or not I should grade this unit a B or if I should grade it an A because they are bringing in a couple of really highly touted transfer quarter, cornerbacks. I think you go B, right? But I think you got to go B because you look at the production that they have coming back from last season. You look at the numbers that this secondary gave up. 248.7 passing yards allowed per game. That was 88th nationally. It was still top half in the SEC, but again, the SEC couldn't stop a nosebleed last year. 88th nationally. They bring back Lewis Klein, he's the only guy Athlon has listed as as a starter, of course, knowing the fact that they had a defensive lineman from Georgia not not rated as a starter, even though he started seven games last year, makes me question how accurate that is. But I'd have to go to look at the do some research myself. But Lewis Klein, the only guy that, that they have listed, obviously bringing in a couple of really t- really talented transfers, Tyke Smith, and then the Clemson transfer. His name's slipping my mind Darian right Kendrick. now. Darian Kendrick. I think they're going to be good. I think they're going to be solid, but they're not the strength of this defense. It might honestly be the weakest unit on this entire Georgia team. So I'm going to I'm going to grade it a B. I'd say that. Say, say B is fair. Darren Kendrick is a lockdown corner. He will be one of the best quarters in the SEC this year. He's been one of the best corners in the ACC for the past couple of years. He's been an all-conference selection. So I think they've got at least one shutdown corner. And then Tyke Smith's a bit of a rover at the top. He's a little bit more of a question mark as opposed to Darren Kendrick. I still think he's going to be good. How good? Switching from the Big 12 to the SEC, the skill level gets a little bit tougher for him, but I still think he's going to be good. Will he be as good as Richard LeCount and some of these other guys? Probably not, you know, but he's still going to be a good safety and a bridge for them as they try and re-recruit all these guys and, and help this position group develop. And they're bringing in experience there across the top. It's definitely... I'm trying to pinpoint what is the strength of this defense, and it's definitely the run defense, but if you're trying to pinpoint a position group would we all say linebackers? Jeremy, what do you think? Position group of strength for George on defense. I always, when I think Kirby Smart, I think great linebacker play. And I think, you know, last year, the best rushing defense in the nation. Now, a lot of people would say you knew you weren't going to run on Georgia, so you probably threw it a lot more anyways. I think that's what Alabama did. I think you know, they played Florida. They uh, threw the ball all over the yard. So when you're playing Georgia, you know you're not going to run well. You're not going to run against them. They're always going to have a good defensive line. But linebacker play under Kirby Smart, whether no matter where he's been, has always been phenomenal. I just think he has an he has that innate ability to coach those guys up. It's it's his position. He like the same way Nick Saban loves the 
the secondary and Kirby's a big secondary guy too, but middle line linebackers, especially middle linebackers that are coached by Kirby smart always seem, always seem ready to go. But this is just a unit that only brings back five guys. There's so many questions about Georgia. They, they still have a tough schedule. They pick up Auburn. They have to play Florida. They're still playing in the sec, but they're going to have a great offense to push them this year. So just defensively, I'd look and say, you always know you're going to have really good linebacker play with a Kirby smart coach defense. If they can get the secondary rolling, like you mentioned, Richard LeCount, do they have one of those guys back there? We'll see. They've recruited as well as anybody else in the country over the last four or five years. Um, I expect their defense to be ready to go out. In midseason, it'll probably be on par with one of the best defenses in the country again. Who's further along going into game one? It's Clemson versus Georgia. Which team is further along as they meet to open up the college football season? Lance, I'll start with you. I think I think Georgia is. You go back to what Clemson was doing in that spring game. I know you cannot put a lot of stock in what was happening, but that Clemson offense seems to really have some issues. It could be that Clemson's defense is just absolutely lights out, but I think this Georgia team is is just a little bit further along. It gives me que- I, I question whether or not Georgia will be able to actually go and win that game because it is in Charlotte. Um, even though that's not like a huge huge game changer, I just I just have a slight concern about that. But as far as further along, I think Georgia, as a cohesive unit, as a team, is further along than Clemson is right now. Jeremy? I still think they both have quarterback questions. I mean, is uh, Uliagalele, is he going to be the guy? I mean, he played well when Trevor Lawrence didn't play uh, because of COVID last year. Is he going to be able to step up into that big-time starter role? I think, yeah. Is JT Daniels going to be able to um, – kind of build off what he did towards the end of the season last year when everybody in the SEC and uh, some of the best coaches in the country at Clemson have some tape on him. I think Clemson, to me, probably a little bit ahead. A lot of people are saying that they will have the best defense in the nation this year. They have Breezy across the defensive line. They have recruited well um, outside of last year for a good four or five-year stretch. That is just a clash of the Titans early. That is just a, That's going to be an exciting matchup. I'm going to split the difference here. I'm going to say Georgia is further along mainly because they have it seems like there's a lot more continuity on that side of the ball I mean they bring back almost their entire offense they bring back a quarterback Clemson has less continuity on the offensive side of the ball going to game one but they have all the continuity on defense Georgia doesn't have any on that side but why I give Georgia the edge is because I feel like it's a lot harder to get the offense that doesn't have a lot of continuity I, I feel like it's a lot harder to have them ready in week one than it would be to have Georgia's defense ready for week one, especially when you talk about Kirby's strength. Now, of course, Dabo's strength is offense, but still, I, I, inherently, it appears to be easier for defenses to come along quicker than it is for offenses. Yeah, I would agree with you briefly before we go to break. We never get to talk about special teams in the, in, in these analysis, uh, in this analysis series. Doesn't I, matter. I want to talk about Georgia's special teams because I think as a unit, it may be the best in the country. I've got them graded as an A. Jake Camarda, their punter. Led the SEC in yards per punt last season. Jake Podlesny, 13 of 16 field goals, including the game winner over Cincinnati in the Peach Bowl. I believe it was like a 52-53 yarder. And then their two return men, Kiaris Jackson and McIntosh, may be, as a duo, the best duo in the country. Jackson is the only player in the SEC to post at least 5.5 yards per punt return and 25 yards per kick return last season. He had 15 and 11 respective attempts in 2020. Jackson also had more than 100 solo return yards twice last season against Florida and South Carolina. And then Kenny McIntosh, McIntosh was really explosive in the return game. Return game, 
as a running back. He he is I think it was like third or fourth on the depth chart as, as a running back goes. He got four of his six kick returns to go for at least th- 35 yards with an overall average of 36 yards. Kenny McIntosh had an av- uh, returns of 48 and 43 against Arkansas in the season opener and then a 42-yard return against Tennessee. As a duo, I think this is the best in the country. As a as a special teams unit, I think this is this is the best in the country. Really solid numbers all around. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little NBA basketball Eastern Conference Finals. We'll look back at our keys to the Eastern Conference Finals and talk about what those results looked like in Game 1 and how that'll carry over into Game 2. You're listening to On the Line. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Follow Fox Sports Central Alabama on Facebook. Keep up with the latest going on in sports. On the Line, The Drive with Bill Cameron, analysis, news, and more. All on Fox Sports Central Alabama on FoxSports983.com and on Facebook. That's FoxSports983.com. Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports joining us from our Fox Sports Central Alabama studio up in Sylacauga. We're here in Auburn, Alabama, but, you know, the 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 wonders of technology. So, Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net and then Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you as well here on the Friday edition of On the Line. Said so we would talk a little bit about the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. A lot of folks, you you know, Atlanta starts doing well, and then around here in Auburn, Alabama, and really just in Alabama in general, you start to see a lot of Atlanta fans show up all of a sudden. All of a sudden, I'm bandwagoning, even though I said <laughs> I was a, Th- a Suns fan on Twitter like three days ago. So folks are tuning in now to the Hawks, who have made it to the semifinals of the NBA playoffs. And they stole game one against the Bucks. And some of our keys that we that we looked in on, you know, we were talking about Giannis, how would the Bucks guard Trey Young? And some of those questions were answered answered in game one. And the question is, can that be replicated going into game two tonight? Can the Hawks steal game two? The the one of my keys that I had, and it was the last one, I really really didn't talk about it a whole lot earlier this week, but I said degree of difficulty. If the Hawks were to win, how difficult did it look? And they only won by three, and it took a 48-point effort from Trey Young. Now, of course, he didn't get a whole lot of help from his supporting cast, but on top of that, you go and look at the Bucks' supporting cast outside of Giannis. Chris Middleton went like 6-for-23. Drew Holiday had a pretty good game supporting Giannis, but Chris Middleton, one of their other main pieces, horrible game. So even the Bucks didn't play as well as they could have. Trey Young drops 48, and the Hawks only win by three. I think that that tells you that even though the Hawks stole game one, this is still the Bucks series. That's right. Whenever you look at what Giannis was able to do, uh, he almost had a triple-double. He was one assist away from getting a triple-double. Drew Holiday, averaging 17 a game, scored 33 points against the Hawks. Chris Middleton, averaging 20, scored only 15 and shot poorly from the field. And then the rest of the Bucks supporting cast just really didn't do a whole lot. Uh, production wise and then you look at Atlanta and there are legitimately only two guys that that can consistently score night in and night out and that's Trey Young and John Collins and it took 48 points from Trey Young to get a close decisive win over Milwaukee John Collins had a big game he had a really big game but there's there were some moments in that game where it was really really frustrating to watch because what Trey Young does so well is he draws fouls and there were a couple of times where it's very the the Bucks were very visibly upset and even I was just like don't know about that one fam it's like I don't know how many times you're going to be able to get that foul call uh, especially especially on the road I'm just afraid that 
Atlanta's not going to be able to replicate what they did in game one because it just seemed kind of like a one-off thing. Now, whenever it gets back to Atlanta, I'll be interested to see. Jeremy? Yeah, can Trey Young do it again, and can everything go wrong for Milwaukee? I just I think that's going to be the key. Trey Young's going to have to score 40-plus again to win, and Giannis is going to have to have a bad day. I, I just don't really see all those pieces falling into place. I wouldn't be surprised if this series ended at you know a 4-2 advantage for Milwaukee, maybe even 4-1. I know a lot of people are jumping on the Hawks bandwagon here, and, and rightfully so. They're right next door in, in, in Georgia, but... That the uh, the Clippers series and the Sun series, and you know, Lance just he trades teams like like no other apparently. But that was a fun. I mean, last night that first half, I watched the first half before I went got to bed. But just a back and forth first half. Paul George lighting it up, and you have Booker, D Book, and Chris Paul eight. And I mean, that's that's a fun. That's a, that to me that just feels like a much more fun series to watch. Yeah, it, what's interesting is, and I, w- I want to talk about like the cultural impact of the NBA around us now here in the state of Alabama because there is no NBA team here, but the closest one is two hours down the road in Atlanta. People latch on to Atlanta when they're doing really well. I wonder if this continues. The Hawks are ahead of schedule at the moment. They're still incredibly young. This is going to hurt them from a draft perspective, obviously, because they're not drafting super high up this year, but... They have a young core that they've drafted up to this point. They can build around Trey Young. Maybe they can attract some good free agents to the city. Taxes aren't that bad down here, you know, compared to L.A. or New York, right? So maybe they can get some free agents here that can help elevate the franchise to maybe being a more consistent contender in the Eastern Conference. And maybe some of those fans will stick around. But also, I think what's interesting is I think folks are beginning to be more interspersed out in the NBA as more Auburn players get drafted. Yeah, I think that's definitely something interesting to be looking at as, as players from Tuscaloosa and from Auburn are, are starting to make their way into the NBA. And we've talked about it a little bit on the show before about how we're in a golden age of Alabama and Auburn basketball at the same time. And we're definitely going to get to see some some people from the state of Alabama pull for various teams around the country as players actually get drafted. But I'll, I'll say I'll say a couple of things. Number one, I'm actually a Mavs fan. I've been a Mavs fan for a few years now. It's just whenever your team gets knocked out of the playoffs, it's kind of hard to sit there and just hate on everybody else. I don't really watch the NBA a whole lot. I just kind of pull for, for, for whatever's enjoyable to watch, and there's a lot of fun basketball to watch during the playoffs. So I'll pull for whatever team is doing well. Um, but as far as like talking about how young Atlanta is, I want to say briefly, another team that is incredibly young right now that made it to made it almost to the playoffs is the Memphis Grizzlies. They are incredibly young whenever you look at their roster, but they have so much talent and so much potential. I think the teams in the region here in the southeast are going to get really, really good as time goes on. I think it's going to be there's going to be a lot of fun basketball to watch with both Auburn players getting getting drafted and NBA teams and the Southeast getting better. Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports. Jeremy, we appreciate you joining us today. I know you got to head out now. we got 30 minutes left of the show. Appreciate it, my man. I hope you have a good afternoon. Thanks, guys. That was Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama. We're in half of the show. We'll be back in just a few moments. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. Thirty minutes left in the Friday edition of On the Line. Thirty minutes left in your work week. We are working for the weekend. Hope everybody's doing well out there. Hope everybody has a safe and fun weekend. Lord willing. And Lance, 
We have 30 minutes left in the show. We've got a fun idea for a new segment called Fill in the Blank Friday, a new segment that we'll do on Fridays. And people can interact with the show. We got a text number here, 334 275 8632. You want to text into the show, 334 275 8632. I'll say that again, 334 275 8632. Fill in the Blank Friday. We're going to give some scenarios here, and you'll just fill in the blanks. Send your answers to, once again, 334-275-8632. Here we go. Let's start it off. Bryce Young, Alabama quarterback Bryce Young, will have blank passing yards and blank touchdowns. I'm going to go with 3,800 passing yards and 31 touchdowns. And here's my reason for that. Does that get him in New York? That does not get him in New York, in my opinion. Look at what Mac Jones did last season for the Crimson Tide. 4,500 passing yards, 41 touchdowns, 4 interceptions, averaged 358.2 passing yards per game. And so I asked myself, okay, if Alabama plays a 14-game season, as I, 14 or 15-game season, as I, I would expect them to, how many passing yards a game is that? And that's about 270. I think that's accurate. It could be somewhere floating around there. So 3,800 yards, 31 touchdowns, I feel like is accurate for a freshman quarterback in Bryce Young. I approached this from a slightly different angle. I looked at it in terms of like averages and completion percentage and then yards per completion. And last year, Alabama was averaging like 14 and a half yards per completion. I think that number drops just a tad bit, maybe to like 13 and a half or high 13s, maybe. Say Bryce Young completes his passes at a 65 to 68% clip. I think he gets somewhere around 3,500 passing yards and 30 touchdowns. So we're in the same ballpark. But what's interesting is that's an 1,000-yard difference. So how much worse is this Alabama offense for having 1,000 less passing yards from their starting quarterback in what would be a longer regular season, more games possibly for them if they were to go all the way, of course, which I I don't know if they're going to go all the way. But I'm just saying, how much worse is the Alabama offense if the passing game subtracts 1,000 yards because they're not going to pick up 1,000 yards in the rushing attack? No, I don't think they will. I don't think they're going to be scoring 48.5 points this season. I'll just say that. How much of a difference maybe then? How much of a difference in what? Like points per game. Points per game. Maybe I think, you shave off a touchdown to get down to forty. I, I That's think, still a ton. Uh, I would say somewhere between thirty-eight and forty-two. I would, yeah, I'd say thirty-nine or forty is probably the happy medium. I got a text: twenty-five hundred passing yards, twenty-four touchdowns. That's low. That's low. That's low. Probably that's, coming that's from a Bama more, fan. That's kind of closer to a Bo Nix number. <laughs> that is actually. Hey, there you go. That's actually really close to my Nick numbers for Bo Nix. There you go. All right, well, let's keep it going then. Bo Nix will have blank passing yards and blank touchdowns. Once again, the number to text if you've got thoughts, 334-275-8632. Bo Nix numbers, blank passing yards and blank touchdowns. Look at what he did last season. 2,400 passing yards, 12 touchdowns, 17 interceptions, 16 touchdowns, and 6 interceptions in a full season as a true freshman. He has not eclipsed. 20 yards or 20 touchdowns yet I think it happens this season I'm gonna go 2,700 passing yards 23 touchdowns for Bo Nix 
and I don't think he's going to be as much of a factor rushing the ball. He had seven touchdowns rushing last season. I think he's going to have a little bit less. He might honestly have two or three, and I think it's going to be more directed in either in Tank Bigsby's direction or the passing game. So 2,800 yards, twenty-three or 2,700 yards, 23 touchdowns. I'm right there with you with passing yards. And once again, I go back to, I looked at this from a yards per completion standpoint, and then that coupled with how many attempts I expect Auburn to throw and then what completion percentage clip. And maybe Bo Nix gets up to, say, a 63% completion percentage, which people are like, ah, that's still not that great. It's like, that's a 4% jump for him compared to his career average, which is sitting at like 59.9%, so really only a 3% jump. But still, that's a nice little jump. That's a more accurate, a more consistent passer in Bo Nix. I still think with these receivers and with this offensive line, you see in the low 60s, so that's where I get 63% from. Maybe he has somewhere between 360 and 380 pass attempts. He had 357 last year in the form of pass attempts, and that was in an 11-game season. So I think he probably has another 30 or 40 this year. I still expect Auburn to run the ball a lot. So get up get to, get to, up to about 380 pass attempts, maybe somewhere in between there and 360. And then you take a 63% completion percentage at what? Maybe an 11 and a half yards per completion a 12 yards per completion clip that sets him at about 2700 passing yards and then I just kind of spitballed on touchdowns and I said he'll throw 10 more touchdowns this year because I said I ah, will say about two touchdowns a ball game give or take that would have put him at 24 over a 12 game season I think maybe he throws a little bit less Auburn relies on the run game inside the 10 I say he gets to about 22 touchdowns it's definitely a much better season than what we got from him the first two years Got to got to cut down on some picks too. I would like to see him not have twenty two touchdowns to seven picks. If he's only going to throw twenty two TDs, I'd like to see the interceptions more at about five, it, 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 because I mean just the volume's not there. Right, you're saying sixty three percent completion percentage compared to this year's fifty nine percent. Is that a huge jump in your mind? Because we're talking about this offense scheme wise making Bonix more efficient. Is that a big jump in your mind? It is in my mind from a from a percentage standpoint. Three, four percent is, is, I mean, you think from 60, so let, let me ask you that same question. Is 63% to north of 65% a big difference to you? Uh, say it again, I'm sorry. Is 63% to 66% a big difference to you? Yes. Like, do, do those quarterbacks look different? Yes. They do. So, like, a yeah. quarterback below 60%, which has been Bo Nix through his first two years, I think looks dramatically different to getting to 63%. Now, 63% still may not be a sexy number, but I still think that's a substantial improvement. The next question is, in his senior year, can he add to that number and maybe get north of 65%? That's where you have to ask yourself. But I think this year, especially with with, uh, not a very good offensive line and then receivers right now that he's trying to break in, I think that, that you still see some inconsistencies there, but it's going to be a better year for Bo Nix this season. I mean, 2,700 yards passing and 22 touchdowns, fine. It's not great. It's just it's above average in college football, and I, th- I think that is an improvement for him. Do we have any text on that one? Uh, we did not yet. I, I don't I don't. Uh, we do not have any text on that one yet. No. All right, so let's get to our third question here. Once again, you can text us. The answers to these questions on fill in the brand, fill in the blank Friday three three four two seven five eight six three two is the number to text. Auburn will finish blank in recruiting, and I'm looking more here for a recruiting ranking or a range. Where where will Auburn finish in recruiting? I think that they will finish top fifteen in recruiting. That will be my fill in the blank. Oh, we got a text. We got a text here. Bo Nix numbers, 2,100 passing yards, 15 touchdowns. Okay, so 
not a good not a good year. Well, you think <laughs> slightly <laughs> better than last year, but still not a good year on a twelve game season. Well, I guess I guess you could see. Well, he's going down three hundred passing yards in a season that he only had eleven games. So I I mm, mm. more touchdowns though. More touchdowns though. But again, this was also an eleven game season. You think that he would have. Last game of the season in a bowl game. Also. I wonder if this character thinks that T.J. Finley will take his job. I wonder if they think it could, it could be Terry. <laughs> Terry, if you're out there, call in or text us. Let us know how many yards passing will Bonix have this season. Please let us know. I'd love love to get your take on that. Fifteen, I think. I think somewhere around there is reasonable for Auburn in recruiting rankings. We see right now. I believe they're like 13th in the SEC and outside of the top 40 nationally. They're like 66 nationally right now. It's not looking good. It's not looking it's good. It's early, but it's incredibly early. But exactly. this is also like while while some people will say, and I just said this, it's early. On the flip side, they're still 13th. It's early for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like everybody follows a parallel, a parallel ride. Like everybody's on the same track, and there's just people that are further down the track than Auburn right now, in terms of what they've added in their class. Auburn only has three commits in this class. They have a ton of work to do. I think Auburn gets top 20, not top 15. Probably close. Probably somewhere around 17. That's where I'm sitting at. If I was going to, if I had to say a single numeral, I would say 17 would be where I would put Auburn at. But I'm going to say top 20, at least, for Auburn football, but not inside that top 15. To make people feel better right now, I want you to go look at 24-7 sports recruiting rankings. Realize that Rutgers is number five and realize they won't yeah, be number early. five at the end of the season. Just feel good, okay? Yeah, I mean, Tennessee was set two at one point last year, and that did not last. Whenever you go and play on NCAA 14, and you and I have seen this firsthand <laughs> recently, it's like the recruiting rankings rank, rankings will literally be just a bunch of group It'll of five like teams. Army number one. Uh, USF number two. We got a text. This is Trail from Greensboro. Harson better finish top twenty or else with two exclamation <laughs> point, three exclamation points. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, I would I would like to see Harson fit, finish top twenty. I think that's top fifteen would be where I would feel comfortable with it. Uh, I, I'm I'm right there with you. He's got to finish top twenty five. Otherwise, there will be some Auburn fans that are really upset. And I'll tell you something else. If we're going back to talking about Bo Nix's numbers next season in two thousand and twenty two, he's got to be able to get some of those those offensive linemen to commit this season because he's going to have a lot of starting receiver experience. Bigsby's going to be back. He's got to be be able to have somebody to block for him heading into his senior season, and then the offense could be really good. Fill in the blank Friday, number to text, 334-275-8632. That's how you can text your answers into the show. We'll read them out on air. KD's feud with Scottie Pippen in the NBA. I'm not sure how many people have seen this, but there has been some publication about it out there. Scottie Pippen was a little critical of Kevin Durant's play style, a score, said that he hadn't passed LeBron James yet, that he doesn't really elevate his teammates. KD responds by cutting deep and reminding Scottie Pippen of an instance in his career where he was not one of the players to take the last shot. I can go and find direct quotes about that, but I'm sure some people have seen this feud out there. KD's feud with Scottie Pippen is blank. Embarrassing for Kevin Durant. I side with... I side I side with Scottie Pippen on this one because you have the quotes. I do not have the quotes. I can pull it up for you in just a second. But here's the thing, right? I think Scottie Pippen's very accurate. I think Kevin Durant is a scorer. That's what he does well. He's really, really good at that. He has not passed LeBron James. LeBron, he may be the best scorer I've ever seen. He may be the best pure scorer that time. we that we have at least right now. I don't know. I I don't know if I would say of all time, but I, I could see somebody make that argument legitimately. But like right now in the NBA, he's the best pure scorer that we have. But I'm there with Scottie Pippen. I don't think he surpassed LeBron James. I don't think he makes everybody else around him better. 
I, I'm there. And then Kevin Durant's clap back to be like, oh, well, you weren't on the court for the last shot in a game. It's like, if anything, that's humble, right? I'm not trying to be one of the greatest of all time. I, I, I'm trying to let somebody else that has a better opportunity to score the basketball shoot. I can be one of the greatest of all time and let somebody else score. This is via the ESPN Twitter account. Here, here are the quotes. Has he surpassed LeBron? Question mark. No. He tried to beat the Milwaukee Bucks instead of utilizing his team. LeBron James would have figured out how to beat them. KD is a shooter, a scorer, but he doesn't have what LeBron has. And the KD responds with, didn't the great Scottie Pippen refuse to go in the game for the last second shot because he was in his feelings? His coach drew up the play for a better shooter. And... There, there's been some different like Scottie Pippen quotes that I've seen on this, um, but I, I think Scottie Pippen's assessment on this, and my answer to this question is KD's feud with Scottie Pippen is disproportional. I, I think that KD's response to it is at a disproportion to Scottie Pippen's remarks. Scottie Pippen was being interviewed. He was he was being asked these questions, and he gave a legitimate, rational response, analyzing the game. And Scottie Pippen isn't is an analyst of today's NBA. You've seen him on NBA talk shows. I believe he's on the jump a lot with ESPN on television. He he is oftentimes making remarks, analyst remarks about the game of basketball as well within his place to, and I don't even think he's criticizing Kevin Durant here. He's a great scorer. He's making an observation. And if you went and watched game seven between the Nets and the Bucks, what was Kevin Durant doing? He was torching the Bucks. He was scoring. I mean, he would drive into the lane and get trucked and still bank something in. Some voodoo shot. You know, like Kevin Durant is an incredible scorer. An incredible scorer. But he didn't elevate his teammates. It was all about Kevin Durant and that. And and just go and look at his career. When has Kevin Durant won anything when it was just him as the guy? He's the guy in Brooklyn right now. He was the guy in Oklahoma City. Did he ever win anything? No. No. And guess where he went? He went to Golden State and he won something because he had other dudes that were already the guys of San Francisco with the Golden State Warriors. I just, Kevin Durant here, disproportional. I was listening to Greeny on ESPN Radio earlier today and Greeny said something that I thought was interesting. Greeny said that, um, Greeny Greeny pointed out that this would be like someone saying that I dislike your shirt and then the other person saying, oh, and then punching you in the face. It was just a really disproportional reaction. I got a I got a text about Bo Nix's numbers: twenty six hundred passing yards, sixteen touchdowns. Is a prediction. I think that's accurate. I think that's fair to say. We're right there with them on yards, and I understand holding down on touchdowns there because you could say that Tank Bigsby's going to get all of those. Yeah, I think that's. I think uh, I think that would be really accurate if Tank Bigsby is going to be carrying the load this season in twenty twenty one. We're going to take a quick break here as we have gone a little bit long on this segment. When we come back, we've got a caller, Bill. Stay on the line with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Back on On the Line, wrapping up the Friday edition of the show. We've got about four minutes left. Let's head to the phone lines now. Bill's been waiting patiently for us on the line. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Bill, thanks for calling in and thanks for waiting patiently. How's your day going? Hey, guys. Just got off. Great day. Good. Not 90 degrees. What's on your mind? But, uh, I usually don't call. About... I just sit back and listen to you, Yahoo, and I laugh. Y'all, y'all are the funniest people I've ever heard on talk radio sports show. Well, we but appreciate that. You were talking about Kevin, the Kevin Durant comment back to Scotty Pippen? Yep. And I honestly think that Scotty Pippen wasn't all wrong, but neither was Kevin Durant. 
Scottie Pippen did pout when he did not get a chance to take the last shot. He pouted and refused to go in the game to help his team. He just brought up a fact. That that was a fact. Scottie did that. And it was a blight on Scottie's reputation, his career. Uh, everybody brings that up. You did that. And second, next, um, we forget Jordan didn't make anybody better until he had Pippen and Kukoc and 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 Cartwright and Paxton. Until he had a, a, a supporting cast, he didn't win a game. He was scoring 50 points, but he didn't win. He didn't win anything. LeBron, yep. LeBron, same thing. When LeBron passed the ball and didn't take the last shot, what do we say? He has to take that last shot. He, he has to be the one. Even if it was the right basketball play, we still criticize LeBron for not taking the shot. Hit or miss. Now, last night, or was it night before, whenever that was, Kevin Durant didn't have the supporting cast. And who on the floor was he going to pass that ball to? Mm. I take that shot, too. Oh, no, 100%. And, and, and I think Kevin Durant's one of the best scorers in the game or, or maybe even the best scorer of all time. I'm not faulting him for that. I think the the big thing here is, I, and what I said on it, was it maybe a disproportional reaction? It just seems like Kevin Durant often finds himself in the face finds him in the face of the national media for, for some of his responses that, that maybe he could have just not have not have gone into. You understand? Oh, he definitely has proven over time that he is very thin-skinned. Yeah, that's a He's great way to put thin. it. I mean, it is, when, when you come up with a ghost Twitter account, then get bad about it. You, you have thin skin. You yeah. really do. You're arguing with a 12-year-old. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, you know, he does. But he wasn't wrong in what he said about um, Scotty Pippen. He that's just fair. pointed out a fact. That's true. That and, is true. And, and, and Scotty put himself in that position. If you're going to criticize, you got to be able to take the criticism back. What are your thoughts and on KD? On, on, on KD? Yeah. I think KD is, yes, he is one of I don't know if he's the greatest scorer. It's hard for me to say that uh, across generations. But, um, yeah, he, he, he's definitely the greatest scorer of the game today. Do you think he helps um, make his teammates better? Well, I think the, the game before, didn't he have that triple-double? And didn't um, Jackson and a couple of more guys who you don't never really hear of, what, what, didn't they get off that night? Um yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. I know he did. He yeah. had like 14, 15 assists, uh, 10, 11 rebounds, 30, 40-something points. Uh, he does make his team better when there's an opportunity to make him better. But last night, on that last shot, everybody, even his team, just stood there and watched it. Nobody moved. Nobody acted like they wanted the ball. Nobody even went to get position when he shot it. They just all spectated. Well, that wouldn't happen when my, uh, LeBron was with Miami. That wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened when Jordan had his supporting cast. Uh, but it happened to Jordan when he when when he first started out. Everybody just waited for him to take the last shot, and it wasn't no passing the ball. Even yeah. if 